First Thessalonians 4.17, where it talks about the dead rising, the last trump. That's in Jude 14. Well, you're all right. There is not one place in the Bible that says Christ is going to have a second coming. Not one. That's something we have assumed for decades, and what the whole so-called Christian world assumes is that is his second coming. Now, there, over the years, was a scripture that I had a little bit of question about in, in regards to this, because it looked like a seeming contradiction to some degree or another. And I, it occurred to me this morning, so I began to sort of pursue the thought and see what I came up with. It's quite interesting. Let's go, first of all, to Matthew 24. Uh, this is a pivotal prophecy along with Luke 21. I think I referred to it some even last week uh, about the end times. And uh, here in verse 26, uh, it says, Wherefore, if they shall say to you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. So he's telling us that here in the end times that uh, there will be some awesome events occur in the preceding verses in this chapter. And then he makes that statement. They say he's in the desert, don't go there. If he's hiding in some cave or house or building or somewhere, a secret chamber... Don't go there, he's not there. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, so shall also the coming of the second Son of Man be. It didn't say second coming there, did it? It just said the coming. Okay? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. The tribulation is not the day of the Lord. He speaks here immediately after the tribulation, which is 1260 days. Uh, these events about the moon being darkened and so on, the stars not shining, powers of the heavens be shaken, <coughs> other places that's described as the day of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. And that comes immediately after the, trans the uh, tribulation. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man in his second coming. No. The Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they'll gather together as elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So, speaks of the trumpets there again, just as it does in First Thessalonians 4. And it does talk about his coming, no doubt. But it doesn't say second there anywhere. Now, let's go back to Zechariah 2 for a moment and uh, see the conundrum I've had. I didn't think it was really too much of a contradiction, but uh, I think if I read this and say what it says, the some, maybe not here, but some somewhere, would say, well, he's saying he's out in the desert uh, or in a secret chamber. Uh, don't believe it. Let's read it. Zechariah 2 <coughs> and verse 9. 
For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, speaking of the Babylonians. He tells us above that to flee to Zion and get away from Babylon. For I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And you shall know that the eternal host has sent me. He says in verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For lo, I come. That's a coming. He says, I come. And I will dwell in the middle of you, says the Eternal. So here he's speaking of the end times. Uh, he's just introduced Jerusalem being rebuilt and protecting it. He's about to introduce in chapter 3 and 4 the two witnesses. So the context here is of definitely the end time. It's not speaking of the millennium. Uh, that comes much later. Uh, he comes and stands on the Mount of Olives in Zechariah 14. And the mountain is cleaves in two. So that is the coming that we've read about in Matthew 24 and that I referred to in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, among other places. So that is that coming. But he doesn't say that here. He says, I will come to you and I will dwell in the middle of you. Now, where does he tell us to come to ourselves? In Micah 4, we're all quite familiar. He says, leave the midst of Babylon and go out in the desert, uh, in the wilderness, <clears throat> and dwell there. And there he will deliver us. He also tells us in Isaiah 41, he's going to plant seven trees or churches in the wilderness. So he is drawing his people together. His remnant will come into a desert, wilderness, and mountain place, putting quite a few scriptures together. All mountain, desert, and wilderness. And then, once they are gathered there, he says he will come and dwell in the middle of them. Now, he says he's going to come to the desert. He's going to come to the wilderness and the mountains. And yet in Matthew 24, he says if they say he's out in the desert, don't go there in a secret chamber, don't believe it. Now, is that a contradiction in Scripture? Is, is he saying, I'm coming to the desert, but don't believe he's in the desert? Sounds kind of like it, doesn't it, just at first glance? It's a question I, I think we need to answer, because it is a question people would have of our theology if they put those two Scriptures together and say, well... Don't believe those people out of Zion, because look what it says here in Matthew 24. So it's not just a pedantic question. I think it is a question that needs an answer, and we need to understand so that we have an answer for the hope that lies within us of him coming and dwelling among us. How many times has Christ come to the earth? Does anybody know? How many times is he going to come to the earth? I'm, I'm speaking physically. Let's go back to, uh, well, let's, let's establish one thing first, which we're all familiar with. Ephesians 3, verse 9. Let's understand who we're talking about here. Ephesians 3, verse 9. The speaking of Christ here, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, 
which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by, I'll use the word Emmanuel, Christ himself. So he says here that the Father created all things in Christ. So he's the one that did the creating. John 1. This one you probably have memorized. John 1, verse 1. Let's quickly get to these. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now, this is a book about Christ and his life, so that's who he's referring to. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And, of course, Christ is the one that came as the light of men. So another attestation that Christ was the creator. Colossians 1, uh, here on verse 14. Speaking of Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So, not only the earth, the things that are on the earth, but even the powers and the authorities and the governments, he has allowed and installed. And he said, he, in Daniel 4, that he puts over the governance of men, the basest of men. But we've quoted that many times. So, he is the originator. The Father used him, Hebrews 1. Give you one more. Hebrews one, uh, verse two uh, says, "In the past, he spoke to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds." So, it's clearly established in. Scripture that Christ is the one who did the creating. So, let's go back to the creation in Genesis, having established that, so we know exactly of whom we are speaking here. Uh, Genesis 1, uh, let's see. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, we know Christ is the one who actually did it should say in a beginning, not the, because the earth was without form and void and darkness and so on. And he moved and then he began to create the world as we are recreated as we know it today. So the question is, in one, he did the creating, why was he here? Let's go to chapter 2, verse 7. And the eternal God, Christ, formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So he had to be here uh, to take red dirt and make Adam. He had to have been on site when he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So this isn't a spiritual coming uh, in the sense of sitting in heaven and his presence by his spirit being there. He was actually in presence on the earth. 
in order to accomplish what was accomplished in verse 7. Uh, chapter 2, verse 15. And the eternal God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And he commanded him and talked to him about everything that was there and told him it wasn't good to be alone, but he'd make a help me for it. Uh, chapter 2, verse 21. In Christ, we could have substitute Lord God, Christ here, because we've already established that he was the one doing this. And Christ caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. So he was obviously there to open him up, take a rib out, put it back together. Uh, there's, there's a lot more here, but uh, just a little more. They ate what they shouldn't, and then in verse 8 of chapter 3, and they heard the voice of, the, of Christ walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, I say Christ. He was the one who became Christ. He was not yet the Christ or the Messiah at this point, but he had been preordained to be so before the foundations of the world. So in one sense you could say that since God speaks of those things that are not as if they already were, I think uh, I'm not going astray here, saying that this was Christ, the same being who became the Christ later on. Uh, anyway, where was I here? Oh, verse 8, uh, they heard the voice of Christ walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Christ amongst the trees of the garden. And he called to them. And uh, they had a conversation back and forth here. That's what I want to establish. Verse 21, And Adam also and his wife did the eternal God make coats of skin and clothe them. Uh, the skin must have come off of animals, because uh, that's where skin comes from. Uh, so did he himself sacrifice those animals and treat the hides and then make clothing out of the leather? That's what it sounds like. So definitely he was here. Uh, he was doing physical acts on the earth. And he was talking back and forth with them in uh, conversation. Uh, chapter 4, and it wasn't just them. Chapter 4, verse 6, The Eternal said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? And talked to him about the disappearance of Abel. So he had a physical conversation, speaking back and forth audibly with Cain. Uh, verse 9, Where's your brother? Chapter 6, verse 13, this continues. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, and so on. So he spoke to Noah. Chapter 11, verse 7. Here you have the Tower of Babel, and uh, they were beginning to do things that God did not want them to do, obviously. won't go into the whole story. But... Verse 7, Come, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Eternal scattered them abroad from there. So here's a, another coming. Did he stay here all through uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, and then later with Cain after they were out of the garden, or did he go back and forth? doesn't really say. But here it said, Obviously, from up above, let us go down. So he came to the earth then. 
Anybody keeping count how many times he's gone back and forth? I don't think you can. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Eternal had said to Abram, Get you out of your country, bring your kindred and so on, and go to the land that I will show you. And then he goes ahead and talks to him and tells him various things. And he came back and forth to Abraham quite a few times to make promises and covenants with him. So back and forth quite a bit. Uh, it was apparently Christ who came to the plains of Mamre when Abraham was taking a little siesta in the heat of the day. And Abraham got up and sent for the fatted calf and butchered it and cooked it for probably Christ and one other. Uh, I think, does they use Melchizedek there? I don't know. There's quite a few times Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament. And the book of Hebrews in the New makes it pretty clear that Christ was Melchizedek. And uh, he appeared to Abraham and to others. So, uh, let's see. Chapter 26, verse 1. I'm just flipping through these pretty quickly and not giving the whole story just to make this point. Uh, 26 verse 1, And there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, and the, verse 2, And the Eternal appeared to him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell you of. Uh, so here he speaks to Isaac, Abraham's still on the scene. Maybe he's speaking to Abraham there, uh, but Isaac was there. Uh, chapter 32, verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let you go except you bless me. He says, What's your name? He says, Your name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince have you power with God and with men, and have prevailed. Verse 30, And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So Christ appeared in a human, not a glorious form. Otherwise, uh, Jacob would not have lived. So he came there and wrestled with Jacob all night. <clears throat> That's a pretty physical activity of someone who is actually on the scene, I would say. Uh, we could go to Jacob's dream and the ladder to heaven. It talks about that as well. Uh, he appeared to Joseph in dreams. And in fact, I won't get much into visions and dreams because it's all through the Old Testament and the New of God giving visions and dreams to various ones and even says he will hear again in the end there in Joel 2. Peter had the vision of the unclean animals coming down. So there are many, many. Let's go to, uh, let's go to Joshua for a couple of examples. Uh, after Moses was gone, God dealt with Joshua there to take the people into the promised land. Uh, let me get back to Joshua 1, verse 1. <clears throat> now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Eternal, it came to pass that the Eternal spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, 
Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people. Um, and gave him more instruction there. Uh, verse 5, There shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Tells him to be strong and of a good courage. Gives him guidance and direction here on how he is to do and to be. So he spoke to Joshua. Did he come back and forth from his throne with his Father in heaven? I expect so. I don't think he stayed down here. But he came at certain junctures that were important and gave instructions. First uh, Samuel, verse nine, chapter 9. Uh, here, let's look at verse 7. Did I write that? Oh, I'm in chapter... Oh, I wrote chapter 9, verse 7. Maybe I... I think I wrote that down wrong. Well, we don't need it. First Samuel 30. And verse 8. <clears throat> and David inquired at the eternal saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So here we find that with David, Christ was speaking. They talked back and forth in a conversation. Must have been on the scene. 1 Kings 3, verse 9. Uh, this is Solomon praying, Give therefore your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this so great a people? And the speech pleased the eternal, and Solomon had asked this thing, and God said to him. It wasn't just put in his mind by a spirit or vision or dream. Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, neither have asked riches for yourself, nor the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I've done according to your words. And he goes on and tells him that he'll have more wisdom than any man that has ever lived. So... <clears throat> It isn't just here and there, or one or two examples, but Christ had a great deal of interaction with people in the Old Testament. He makes a comment about that in the New Testament as well, which we will get to. Uh, with Isaiah 1-1, he calls it a vision. Uh, it, it sounds in many places in Isaiah like Christ is talking back and forth with him, but he mentions visions more than once, so it may be mostly by vision that he spoke to him uh, I think in Jeremiah's case, it just says the word of the Lord came to him. Jeremiah 1. Uh, the words of Jeremiah uh, of the priests that were in Anathoth, the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the eternal came. So it doesn't say exactly how it came there, but God obviously somehow interacted with Jeremiah. Whether it was on the scene or not, it does not say in these cases. Uh, I won't turn to Daniel 1.19, but there it says that God spoke to Daniel in a night vision. Again, in 7.13, he talks about a night vision. So Daniel had visions from God. doesn't say that Christ was actually there. Uh, it's a little more direct in Hosea. Hosea 1. I'm kind of speeding through these. Uh, 
just to, to give you a little bit of a, a background. And, and, and there are many, many, many more examples I could use. The word of the eternal came to Hosea, the son of Beery, in the days of Josiah, and so on. Uh, the beginning, verse 2, of the word of the eternal by Hosea, and the eternal said to Hosea. So it doesn't say dream or vision here. It says the word came, and then it says it came by him speaking to him. So this was years and years after the ones we've talked about from Genesis on, and Christ came and spoke with Hosea. <laughs> Joel 1.1 1, 1 says the word of the Lord came. I won't turn to all of these. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 28, he says in the end time that he will speak to our old men and our young women and so on by dreams and by visions. You're all uh, aware of that one. Uh, at the time of the day of the Lord, at the end, that will happen. Uh, Haggai is one we've looked at a lot, so I'll go there. Uh, in the second year of Darius, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Eternal by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek. So it doesn't say how that word got to Haggai, but it was transmitted then from Haggai to Zerubbabel and Joshua. Um, just how, who knows? Zechariah. Uh, as well, says the same thing. Uh, here the word of the Eternal uh, came to Zechariah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying. So, uh, just how? I don't know. Maybe he spoke to it. The Lord has been so displeased with your fathers. But this is the prophet saying it, so we don't know how the prophet got the message for sure. We had an awful lot of them back there in the beginning, which showed direct conversations. Now, let's go to the New Testament. We'll spend the rest of our time here. Uh, the, the Old Testament is simply replete with dozens and dozens of scriptures where there was interplay between Christ and people back and forth, and directly, apparently. And we all know the story uh, in chapter 2 of Matthew when Emmanuel was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So we have commonly referred that to that as his first coming. And yet, after showing that he was the creator and that he interacted with mankind, he must have come to the earth dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, and perhaps even thousands of times in the Old Testament. And the ones that we looked at were just a small smattering. Uh, if I were to go through the concordance, I could find uh, probably dozens, if not hundreds, of things that say the same things as the ones we read. So, when he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, it was not his first coming. That's just a misnomer that we have used over the years. Well, that was his first coming, and then when he comes to raise the saints, that'll be his second coming. I think umpteenth might be the <laughs> more proper word. Anyway, let's go on uh, and see some more. Uh, let's go to 
Well, let's go to John 14. John 14. Now, here's one that I think refers to the past and is projecting into the future. John 14, and let's see, I want to pick it up about verse... Uh, let's go to 29. Here Christ is talking to the disciples in his last time before he was crucified. And I have told you before it come to pass that when it is to come to pass, you might believe. So he had been with them through the Passover and the foot washing, and then he went to the Mount of Olives and had this last sermon or talk with them before he was taken to be killed. And he makes a statement here of his future policy, verse 30. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world comes and has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do, arise, let us go from here. So what he's saying is he had defeated Satan, but Satan was going to be given rulership of the world for a time. And we find other places where he is talked about as the present evil ruler of this world and how he deceives the whole world and so on, Revelation 12:9. There are several things that indicate that, that Satan is now in charge. And you don't have to look around very far in the world today to see that his activities are predominant on the earth. The works of the flesh and the works of Satan are everywhere. And the earth is about as violent and as nasty and as mean as it was in the days of uh, before Noah's flood, or God's flood in the days of Noah, I should say. Have you noticed that even just the last few months, it seems, there are people killing their own children and, and uh, the mayhem and cops shooting people and people shooting cops. and uh, it's, just in the, it's in the paper every day of somebody doing a bizarre killing of some kind. And terrorism is ramping up. I don't think it's just better reporting. It just seems like people all over the world are getting edgier and touchier and meaner and nastier and, and less patience. I mean, we see it all around us. Uh, I even heard a quote recently from, I think somebody was talking to somebody that works in a store, and they remarked about how much nastier people have been getting lately. So I don't think it's just better reporting. I think as we get really near to the end of this age, Satan knows his time is short and Christ is going to take over and rule the earth. So he is doing his level best to destroy all mankind. And the Bible even confirms that over 90% of Israel will be killed, slightly over 90%, and an even greater number of the rest of the populace of the world so that only a hundred million will survive by the time Christ comes to start making judgment during the millennium over the people that are left. So from six and a half billion or whatever it is today, one hundred million is all that will be left. That is way over ninety percent killed. And even those who are building toward the beast power in the new world order today have said many times in speeches and public ways that they intend, and their goal is, to kill 90%, and some have even said 95% of the population of the earth. So that fits in precisely with what God says is going to happen. 
So it's Satan behind the scenes motivating these men who are the human powers that be. Yes, he is. He has capacity to broadcast his thoughts, his wishes, his desires, and in some cases, these people he speaks to directly. Some of them even say they worship Satan, clearly and openly. So, uh, what God says in Scripture is coming to pass before our very eyes, and it is not long now until Satan in his last gasp effort is going to unleash such horror on this earth, but when it's over, uh, that is all that will be left. Now, Christ himself, through the seven last plagues, is going to do some of it. But he's going to allow Satan and his demons and the men that they direct to do a great deal of it. That's just what's coming down. So, what Christ is saying here is, I talked to my leaders, to people, more in the past. But now, since Satan is going to be the one in charge, Christ did defeat him, you know, in the, after his Christ fast, but he didn't take over. He says, my kingdom is not now of this world. If it was, my servants would fight. But it's not, so they won't. John 18.36. So, he is basically hands-off with this world right now, allowing Satan to do his thing. And then when he returns, Satan is going to be bound, and Christ will do his thing. So that's why things are the way they are in the world today, and that's why I think he said what he did here. Hereafter, I'm not going to talk much with you. Now, he did call them his friends, uh, or will here in the context shortly after this, and that he tells them all things. So he had a very, very close relationship with his disciples, and he does say he's going to keep track of the church and count the hair of our heads, maybe of all people, not just us. But he's very, very much in tune with everything that's going on here. But he is not intervening except in isolated cases where he deals with his called out elect and chosen. And he will intervene in their behalf. If it weren't for their uh, status... No flesh would be saved alive. We'd all die. So because of those who are willing to obey, and they are few in number, God is going to save the earth. So he's not going to speak much. But does that mean that he didn't speak any more at all? Now this was just before he died when he gave this talk. Now let's go to John 20 and see some more story here. Now, for the moment, then, let's dismiss the Old Testament uh, as being past and a new situation in the New Testament. So, when he came to the earth as a child, we might say in the New Testament that was his first coming. Well, when was his second coming? John 20. First day of the week comes Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark, you know, where she came and uh, the tomb was open, and he wasn't there. Uh, verse 9, For as yet they knew not the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own home, but he wasn't there. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping, and as she walked, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. 
And there she saw two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Emmanuel had lain. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned her back and saw Emmanuel standing, and knew not who it was. The Christ said to her, Woman, why weep you? Whom seek you? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have borne him hence, tell me where you laid him, and I will take him away. And Emmanuel said to her, Mary, she turned around and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. So Emmanuel said to her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren, and say to them, I ascend to my father, and your father, and to my God, and your God. So he had been resurrected, but he had not yet been ascended to the heavens to be approved of his father. So he, he said, Don't touch me. Then the same day, verse 19, at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Emmanuel and stood in the midst, came right through the wall, apparently, said to them, Peace be to you. And then he showed him his hands and his side, and they were glad. Then said Emmanuel to them, Peace be to you, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, and whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted to them, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Just as a side note, that is an incredible amount of power he gave those disciples to be apostles. But whoever you forgive, I will forgive, and whoever you don't forgive, I won't. Now, did he put power in the ministry, or did he not? How did Paul, later on in 1 Corinthians, say, uh, I'm turning this man over to Satan, the devil, for the destruction of the flesh? In other words, I am not forgiving this man's sin. He's still sinning. And I'm turning him over to Satan, the devil. Paul had that power. So is there government in the church? Let's not go there because that opens a long series. I've been there before, and uh, some people need to go back and read that, or listen to that series, I think. But Thomas, verse 24, one of the twelve called Didymus was not with him when Christ came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger, put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. So he said to Thomas, verse 27, Reach your finger, behold my hands, and thrust it into my side. And Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. So obviously then, since he said that he had not ascended to his Father in heaven, and Mary could not touch him, now he had come back to visit with them, appeared, uh, and allowed them to touch him, so that means he must have gone to heaven and back. There's his second coming. I bet you never thought of that. I never did. There's the second coming of Christ right there. It wasn't his coming in glory, but it was his second coming. That's a, that's a term that has been 
coined and used and kind of misused, actually. Now let's see. Let's go to Acts 1. <clears throat> now it does not say there at John 21, and nor does it in the other Gospels, uh, whether he stayed with them at that point or whether he went back to heaven again. But here in chapter 1 of Acts, uh, he shows interplay between him and the disciples in any, in any case. So uh, Luke says he had made this treatise in the past and spoke to Theopolis, all that Christ began both to do and to teach. Uh, verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now we know in chapter 2 of Acts that he came to them on the day of, well, he doesn't say he came, but when they were gathered on the day of Pentecost, a mighty rushing wind and the Holy Spirit came in power. <laughs> doesn't say that he was there. But he was killed at Passover, and he ascended shortly thereafter, after his three days in the grave, and then reappeared. That was the second coming. And then it says here that for 40 days he was with them, spoke with them, instructed them, guided them, and led them. So Pentecost is counted from 50 during the Sabbath, during the days of unleavened bread. So from... Uh, that Sabbath until Pentecost was a time period of 50 days. And he apparently spent 30 of those 50 days there uh, with them and giving infallible proofs and seeing of them for 40 days. So is that a third coming? Did he go back to his Father in heaven after Thomas fell to his side in his hands? Or did he just simply stay there? It doesn't state per se, at least not that I've seen here. He may have stayed from that point on 40 days and then left 10 days before Pentecost. I don't know. Uh, let's, let's go on, though. Uh, being assembled together, verse 4, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Uh, and talked about how John had baptized with water. But you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Turned out it was Pentecost. When they therefore will come together, they ask of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Uh, we know from other scriptures that Satan is the present evil ruler of this world, so we obviously he did not uh, set up the kingdom at that time. He says, but you'll receive power of the Holy Spirit, and that you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Verse 9, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, uh, two men stood in white apparel, angels apparently, and says, why do you stand there gazing up? He's going to come back in the same manner as what you've seen him go into heaven in verse 11. So they saw him rise, and they said he's going to come back again. 
he didn't he didn't rise there in glory, but he had been back, and he did go back up to his father's throne in heaven. So I don't know how many times this makes. Uh, let's go to Acts twenty-two. <clears throat> now he said he would not speak with them much, but that implies that he would speak with them some, or not very much. Uh, chapter 22, uh, let's begin in verse 7 here. <clears throat> here Paul was on the road to Damascus, and he tells the story. This happened earlier in the book of Acts, but he's telling the story here uh, to some who needed to hear it. Verse 7, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to him, I am Jesus of Nazareth, or Emmanuel, whom you persecute. So, he says, he spoke to me. And they that were with me saw indeed the light, and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spoke to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise, go into Damascus, and that shall be told you of all things which are appointed for you to do. And then he couldn't see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them, he was struck blind. Uh, and later on received this sight in verse 13. And he was told by this Ananias, uh, verse 14, the God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see that just one, speaking of Christ, and should hear the voice of his mouth. So he told him not to wait around, but to rise, verse 16, be baptized and call on God. So, here he tells of his conversion and Christ actually speaking to him. That's backed up in Galatians 1. Let's go there. Galatians 1. No, Galatians 6 is what I guess I'm after. Yeah, Galatians 6, I'm sorry. <coughs> Or maybe I want six. That's not what I want. Where is it here? Here it is. It is in chapter one. Why do I doubt myself? Mainly because I'm often wrong. <laughs> anyway, uh, Verse 15, it says, When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me, which we just read about there in Acts, that I might preach him among the heathen, <coughs> immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. I wasn't talking to people. I was talking to something that wasn't flesh and blood. He was talking to Christ. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. It's been extrapolated from this that Christ must have been in the desert of Arabia, uh, Damascus, for three years giving Paul the instruction the same way as he gave instruction to the disciples. I don't know that it states it that clearly, but this has been used by 
many commentators and even by the church itself over the decades that that's what happened here. So whether or not it was a three-year period or so does not matter to what I'm trying to say here. <coughs> it is clear that he conferred with him. He talked with him. So that was one example of it in the New Testament. Now, again, we could go to 1 Corinthians 15, and I don't know that we need to in 1 Thessalonians 4. Well, maybe I should just go there briefly, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, because we've talked of this as the second coming. Verse 16, For the Eternal Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the eternal in the air, and so shall we ever be with the eternal. We'll never leave him again. Now we'll find in the book of Revelation that he goes back to heaven. In fact, he goes back and forth several times. But from that resurrection in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says we're ever with him. We never leave him again. The bridegroom comes back for his bride and she stays with him from then on, wherever he goes. Well, there's confirmation of that in another scripture. But it doesn't mention the second coming here, does it? It just mentioned that with the trump of God, he'll descend with a shout, and we caught up to meet him. doesn't say which resurrection, or which, uh, which time it was that he came. The same is true back in 1 Corinthians 15. I always thought it said second resurrection, didn't you? Well, I don't, I don't know that I thought it said it because I couldn't remember it actually using that term when I thought about it. But we, we looked at it as that. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, let's see, where do I want here? Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised up incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For the corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this will done, the saying is gone, that, or is, the death is swallowed up in victory, and no death wears your sting. doesn't say second resurrection. It's referring to the same time that Christ returns and resurrects uh, the 144,000, who are the first fruits from Revelation 14, verse 7. That's all-inclusive. There are only 144,000 first groups. These are the. So, let's see Revelation 1 now. <coughs> Revelation 1, and here I want verse 7. Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. He says he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. We saw he was there at the creation. He was on the earth. Uh, that may have been his first coming, and again, it may not have. It was a time of recreation, and who knows, when the earth and the universe were first created, where he went then. So he may have come and gone a lot of times even before Genesis 1-1. So it says every eye will see him, but it doesn't say 
it is the second resurrection. It's just referring to that same resurrection we read about in Thessalonians and Corinthians. Uh, the same time referred to in Revelation 11, where the two witnesses are killed, and they uh, lie for three and a half days, verse 9 of Revelation 11, and their dead bodies, and they tormented those that dwell on the earth, and then they are resurrected, verse 11, after three and a half days, verse 12, and they heard a great voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. So there was an earthquake. In uh, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Uh, verse 18, same context. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that they should give reward unto the prophets, servants the prophets, to the saints, and then the fear your name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy or pollute the earth. So, <clears throat> there is a coming of Christ. Not the second, but another coming of Christ. This time in glory, every eye will see, and the dead are raised, the first resurrection. So that is a coming of Christ. Uh, then Revelation... 19, I think I want next. Uh, here we have a voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah. And true and righteous are his judgments. Verse 2, he's judged the great whore that corrupted the earth, and so on. So the context here is of Christ intervening in world affairs. And verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen and clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now this isn't prior to the first, I mean the resurrection of the dead that we've read about and his coming in glory. This is afterward. They didn't marry Christ, and they weren't glorified, in order to be married, because like kind marries like kind. While we're still human, we can't marry Christ. We can be engaged to him, but not married, because he can't marry us until we're changed. Verse 9, And he said to me, Write, Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Uh, verse 11, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness does he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. He was coming to judge the world and smite them and rule with a rod of iron. And he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Doesn't he tell us there in Revelation 5.10 that we'll reign with him a thousand years? Well, this is when he's coming to reign. He said when we were first resurrected, we would ever be with him. So, we went to the throne of God to be married to Christ after the first, after the 
his coming in glory. It says we rise to meet him in the air. It doesn't say we come back down at that point. It says we rise to meet him. He takes us to his father's throne. Uh, chapter 15, 2. Let's see that. Revelation 15, uh, beginning in verse 1, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So those who were resurrected at his coming in glory rise to meet him in the air, go back to the throne of God, and stand on the sea of glass where they are married. That's what the Day of Atonement pictures, becoming at one with Christ, never departing from him from that time. Then, as we read in chapter 19, he comes back to the earth, another coming, this time to make war <coughs> and to put down the government's of the earth. So there's another return of Christ in the old, I mean, in the uh, New Testament in times. So people think his returning to this earth is limited to twice. First is a baby, and second is uh, the second coming, they say. But you can easily see here that he comes more than once. Let's see, Jude 14 ties in with that as well. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all and to convict all them that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds. Now, isn't he coming to judge and to rule the world when he comes with his vesture dipped in blood and a sword to put down the kingdoms and to begin to judge? Yeah, and who comes with him? Ten thousands of his saints. Not millions, not billions, tens of thousands. Revelation 14.7 defines that as exactly 144,000. That's tens of thousands, 144,000. Ten times 140 plus. So, <clears throat> we'll always be with him and we'll come and go as he comes and goes. Now let's see... Another instance, uh, Revelation 20 might be one. He comes and puts down the nations, verse 20, uh, chapter 20 then. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and so on. Now, was that an angel, or was that Christ coming down from heaven again? Uh, notice in Daniel 10, I won't go back and read for sake of time, but you know the story there where Daniel fasted 21 days waiting for an answer from God. And God had said it by an angel who was stopped by the prince of Persia, who was Satan himself there, and he couldn't get through for 21 days. And finally, uh, Michael came to help him, the, the cherub Michael. See, there were three cherubs that covered, Michael, Gabriel, and 
Lucifer, or not Lucifer, Hell was his name actually, because Christ apparently was Lucifer, the light bringer. Satan has never been a light bringer. Needless to say, there were only three cherubs that covered. And Daniel, or the one that came, could not get past Satan. Now, if it was Gabriel, they were of equal power, and it was a Mexican standoff, to use the term. Uh, so he couldn't get through. So when Michael came, then it was two on one, and he could get through. It doesn't say there in the context it was Gabriel, but I suspect that it was, and it took two archangels to overcome one. <coughs> in any case, one archangel does not have power to withstand Satan. Now, in Leviticus, uh, in the story of atonement, it showed that there was a fit man, a man fit or qualified to send the live goat into the desert, into the wilderness by himself. And we saw in Christ's uh, temptation that he defeated Satan, and therefore he was more powerful, and he is the only one fit and strong enough and powerful enough to send Satan into the wilderness and bind him there a thousand years. So I suspect that this angelic being here I haven't looked up looked it up in the in the uh, Greek, but by the context it appears that Christ Himself is the one who is qualified and is fit to bind Him. Some people say that that goat that went into the wilderness was Christ. No, uh, He was sent into the wilderness by Himself alone. There's no indication Christ is never sent anywhere by Himself alone. He's always with His Father at the throne of God, or once we are resurrected, we will ever be with him. So he is never sent into the wilderness alone. That is Satan who is sent alone. So here, this being, probably Christ, I won't say for sure, but I think it is, uh, came down from heaven. So there is a, another time, if it is Christ indeed, that he came down from heaven here in the book of Revelation. That's what, three we've talked about here already, at least. Now let's go to chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and uh, I saw, uh, John saw the holy city, verse 2, New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. So, uh, apparently, after he puts down all these peoples and nations and kings, he goes back up to heaven and brings down the new Jerusalem. He has to have, because it says down here that the bride was there. And we already know from, was it Thessalonians? Yeah, Thessalonians, that we'll ever be with him. So if we're with him and he's coming down from heaven, we must have gone back up there again. Okay? No other answer. I heard a great voice out of heaven, verse 3, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Uh, let's move on down. The believers will be included, the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, and different sinners will not be there, verse 8. 
they'll go into a lake of fire which burns and be the second death. Verse 9, And there came to me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, we already established that the new Jerusalem was coming down from heaven as a bride. Here it says, I'll show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, <clears throat> having the glory of God. And her light, that's the bride, was like unto a stone. So here, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, is one and the same with the bride. Now, I believe that it is will have streets paved with gold and the gates will be pearls and so on, as it says in this context. But uh, the bride is depicted as the city, and the city is depicted as the bride. Uh, we've used that many times in Hebrews 12, 22, and 23, to show that Zion and Jerusalem are the church. And uh, even Paul says that there in Galatians as well, about how, well, let's see, Galatians 4, I think it is. We'll go back and read that. Uh, he's talking about us being Christ being formed in us in verse 19 of Galatians 4 and how we'll prevail in birth. Uh, but he, verse 23, he who is of the bond woman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. The free woman is the bride that will marry Christ. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which endured to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answers, answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So Jerusalem is depicted as our mother. We are depicted as Jerusalem, the spiritual church. And here in Revelation 21, uh, the church is the first fruits, 144,000, and it is the bride of Christ coming down with him for a final time. Uh, it even has, let's see, where is it, 12 foundations of the 12 apostles, and verse 17, he measured the wall 144 cubits. That's strikingly close to 144,000. Uh, so the, the, the structure of the city uses the same numbers as the first fruits. Anyway, verse 22, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. So as the heavenly Jerusalem, that is the bride of Christ, comes down with him, the Father comes as well. So the Father and the Son are the temple. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. So the two of them are there. And people walk in the light of it. So here's another return of Christ. That's at least four we've examined now in the New Testament in times where he goes back and forth from heaven. So he came several times before the book of Revelation, 
and he is coming back several times in the near future. So to say he came once and then he's coming again is a misnomer, and it's not considering all the scriptures about Christ. Now, how does that relate to where I started? <clears throat> Zechariah 2, 6 through 13. Did I go back and read that? I think I just referred to it. Let's quickly examine that. Uh, here he talks about Jerusalem being measured and how he will yet choose it and it will be built as towns without walls. Now, this has to be a physical manifestation. Uh, it's not the coming we just read about in Revelation 21 in glory. This is villages without walls that he will protect. So it's not in the kingdom. In the kingdom, all enemies will have been put down. Satan will have been bound. So there's no enemies there to worry about. So why do you need a wall of fires and defense? You don't. This is a time, in the time of the two witnesses, of the remnant at the end of the age, where protection is still needed from the beast power and the new world order. So that's what it's speaking of. And he tells in verse 7, Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Uh, that is one rendering which is true, but in both the RSV and the Amplified Version, it says, Flee to Zion, you that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So either way, it's fleeing from the beast and going to Zion. So here, we have a physical manifestation of people fleeing. Uh, Jeremiah 50 backs it up. With them, when the northern army is coming, it says they'll ask the way to Zion. How do we get to Zion? Because they're afraid of the beast and the Assyrian that is coming. So, verse 8, For thus says the eternal host, After the glory has he sent me to the nations, which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil of their servants. I guess I did read it. Uh, so he sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you. So this is a time when there's still danger. They have just fled from the beast power. And to do, then they have to build the temple. Then they have to build Jerusalem. Then the tribulation starts. So Christ's return in glory to raise the saints is still way off when he is protecting them here and dwells among them. Uh, verse 12, And the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the Holy Land, 10%, and he shall choose Jerusalem again. It's been desolate for many generations. It will be chosen again. And he says, Be silent, O all flesh, before the Eternal, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. So he's been with his Father in heaven during this period of time, and he says he's going to come and dwell with his people in the desert and in the wilderness and the mountains of Zion. Now, is that a contradiction of saying, well, he's in the, they'll say he's in the desert, go not, or he's in the chamber hiding from you? Don't believe it. I don't think there's a contradiction there at all. Here, he's talking about a time prior to his coming in glory, where he is out in the desert dwelling with his people. He's left his habitation with his Father in heaven, come down to look after, take care of his people. Now, will he be visible as a human being? We've seen quite a few examples in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, where he was, but it doesn't say here, so 
not knowing I cannot say. But he will be there, for sure, dwelling, living there, not sitting on his throne, managing things from there, but actually here, dwelling, whether he can be seen or not. That's in the desert, it's in the wilderness, but it is a period of time before he returns in glory. Now, if you go to Matthew 24, that's talking about the time when he does come in glory. The context there is of that return. So, when the timing is right for that return, he's not going to be in the desert. He's not going to be in a secret hiding place on earth. He's going to be coming from his Father's throne in heaven. So, we can look for him to be here in a period leading up to that where he says he will be in the desert with us, dwelling with us. But then he obviously goes back to his father's throne when he has done what he is going to do with the church and the two witnesses and the remnant. He'll go back to his father's throne and then he is going to turn around and come back in glory and he says, don't look for him in the desert then. Don't look for him in a secret chamber then. That's not where he's going to be. He's going to be coming. We've already read every eye will see him. So, some, so I can tell you he's going to be here prior to that time because the Scripture said so. But when it's time for him to come in glory, if somebody tells you, well, that can't be him, he's, he's out in the desert, and he will have been, but he won't be at that point. Because the context changes. He's coming to resurrect his saints and take them back to his throne for the marriage. Then he's going to come back and fight. Then they're all going to go back to the throne and come down as the heavenly Jerusalem. And maybe one more instance there, if he is the one who uh, binds Satan. That'd be at least four times. So he's back and forth, in and out and up and down, all through. So I think we can say that there is no contradiction between Matthew 24 and Zechariah 2. Once he leaves where he is dwelling with his people in Zion and Jerusalem, he'll go back to his throne. Then don't look for him in the desert. Then don't look for him on the earth, because somebody might say, well, you know, the beast and the false prophet, that's God. You know, they will have come and done great signs and wonders. And will there be another great deception there at the end where they claim to be Christ coming? I wouldn't be a bit surprised. A hologram or some sign and wonder that's beyond our comprehension says the very elect would be deceived if it were possible. So it's going to be something truly powerful that is done by Satan lying signs and wonders and with the beast and the false prophet. So... Uh, yeah, Christ has been coming back and forth from Genesis on uh, many times, and will come at least four, three or four times in Revelation that are enumerated. And he will come to his people in the desert, be with them a while, go back to his Father's heaven, in heaven, and then it won't do any good to look for him in the desert or in a hiding place, because he'll be coming down from heaven, and every eye will see him, and will rise to meet him in the air. So I, I think that any apparent contradiction there can be removed simply when we see how much he's gone back and forth and where he intends to be at certain times. So I just thought that was a very interesting study. 
and might clear up a scripture or two scriptures if we ever call the task about him being in the desert with us because he plainly says he will come and dwell with us there but not at the time that it's time to come back and gather his saints.